welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, good morning, Michael. Um, it's good to have you as a guest on the podcast. My, my guest today is Michael Flournoy, and um, I'm going to let him kind of introduce himself here in, ju- in just a minute. But um, Michael is um, was in the uh, Latter-day Saints Church, and he was even an apologist for the Latter-day Saints. And um, But now he is um, has come out of the church and um, uh, out of the Latter-day Saints Church, and he is in Christianity, like I guess you'd say it like Orthodox Christianity or traditional historic Christianity. And, um, so, Michael, why don't you go ahead and um, introduce yourself, and 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 then also, if you would just give like an overview of your story of where you were and um, how you came out. Just so I know you have a really nice a video of that on YouTube that I'm going to link to, but if you can kind of give us an overview of it, so any guests who are not familiar with you, um, can have, you know, that kind of background knowledge before we just kind of go into a few questions. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks for having me on today. So, uh, like you mentioned, my name is Michael Flournoy. I was born and raised in the Mormon church. Uh, my mom's family, had been in the church for six generations before I'd been born. So I have ancestors who knew Joseph Smith personally, uh, ancestors who crossed the plains in handcarts to Salt Lake City. Uh, On my dad's side of the family, my dad was the first member of the church, so he was a convert. And so I was going to be the first person in my family uh, carrying the Flournoy name to go serve a two-year mission, and that was a really big deal. So I actually happened to be the oldest uh, cousin on both sides of the family. And so in my generation, I was going to be the first one to go serve this two-year mission. And so my grandpa would tell me, like, hey, you're the torchbearer. In other words, it was my responsibility to set the example for everybody else and continue the traditions of the family And so, uh, yeah, I served a two-year mission in Anaheim, California. And while I was there, I ran into my first Christians. And they sat me down and they debated me for about three hours. And I say debate, but I didn't know how to debate at the time. And I was just steamrolled for about three hours. And they were using the Bible the whole time, which really shocked me because I thought, hey, the Bible's supposed to be on our side. How are they able to to do this? And so I walked away from that first encounter uh, just feeling like, hey, I don't know that the church is actually true. And uh, I decided I'm going to go home and I'm going to read I'm going to read the Bible. By home, I mean my apartment on my mission. I, I didn't intend to leave my mission, but I stayed there. I started studying the Bible. And unfortunately, I only knew how to interpret the Bible one way, and that was with my Mormon sunglasses on, right? So it's like every time I come across a passage, I'm going to interpret it in light of the church being true. So just as an aside, when you're Mormon, you don't take the evidence and then go wherever it leads. You start with the answer. In my case, the church is true, and then you make the scriptures fit, And so when you read it that way, I I came away believing more than ever the church is true. And so I I came off of my mission two years later, and I decided to become an an amateur apologist for the church. I wrote a book called A Biblical Defense of Mormonism, and I spent a fair amount of time on Facebook groups debating Christians. I was doing podcast debates. You can still hear some of those online. And I was doing in-person debates. Uh, I did one at the Southwest uh, Theological Seminary in Fort Worth against a Christian named uh, Lee Enox. And uh, yeah, I was just completely convinced that the church was true. I believed that I would be a member my entire life. And, And then in 2015, I decided I was going to study grace 
because this is the one thing Christians are constantly saying that they have that, that we don't. And if I can just pull that rug out from under them, they're done. It's checkmate. So I went after grace hard and I started studying it and I realized real quick, this isn't what is taught in the Mormon church. And it was really when somebody brought up the doctrine of imputed righteousness to me and explained that it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness that brings us to heaven. That was a completely new concept for me. And surprisingly, I found it in the Book of Mormon first, and then I saw it in, uh, in the symbolism in the temple, which we can talk about later. Um, and that's what got me to trust the Bible, to kind of look in the Bible and see what it said. And of course, once I opened the Bible, I saw it everywhere. And so I became convinced that imputed righteousness was a true doctrine. And uh, I didn't realize that that was contrary to LDS belief at the time. So I just went along. I was the ward mission leader. I was in charge of uh, all the missionary efforts in our congregation, and I was bringing people in. And then one day God just opened my eyes and I realized, you know, if, if Christ's righteousness is given to me at faith and he's completely worthy of celestial glory or, you know, all the rewards possible, why do I need to do anything to, to earn a place at the Father's side? Because it sounds like I already have it. And that's when I realized God had turned me into a Christian without me realizing it was ever happening. So explain what you mean by imputed righteousness. All right. So the word imputed means that it is accredited to you. And the way I explain it to Mormons quite often is I'll do an analogy about insurance, like car insurance. Sometimes they'll use imputation. So say, uh, like I'm talking to two missionaries. I'll say like, say one of you is on the, uh, on the insurance and the other one isn't, but one day you're just feeling tired. So you let your companion drive you home and then he wrecks the car and he's not covered under the insurance by law. You're going to be in, in trouble. You're going to be the, you have a penalty that you're going to have to deal with. But if they're really nice, your insurance company could impute that charge to the person who's actually covered under it or impute the coverage to the person who wrecked the vehicle so that you don't have that same penalty. And basically, this is what Jesus did for us, is he accredited the coverage to us so that when we do sin, there's no penalty. And that's worked pretty well when I've used it to talk to missionaries. Okay. So um, it's um, like if a sinful person were to die for us, it's like, you know, what, what's that? You know, that doesn't mean anything, but because Jesus is righteous, he dies for us. And, um, and then we are counted righteous because he is righteous. Like we're declared, it's credited to us. Um, is that kind of along the same lines as, as what you mean by imputed righteousness? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the great thing is that Mormons are actually predisposed to being able to understand imputed righteousness, um, if it's explained to them the right way, because they actually believe in imputation. They just don't know that they believe in it. So they will go and uh, get baptized vicariously for their dead ancestors, for example. And they believe that on the other side, uh, in the next life, those ancestors can accept that baptism um, and it counts as if they had actually gone into the waters of baptism. And so their yeah. act of being baptized is imputed to their dead ancestor. So I'll use that to explain that this is what Jesus did for us. He came to earth and he lived God's laws perfectly. Every iota never missed a beat. And then when he went to the cross, that was imputed to us. So actually what we have is Christ's entire life of perfect obedience on our account, meaning we can't mess that up and there's nothing to add to it. Because if you say you're going to add something to imputed righteousness, 
um, you're basically saying you're more worthy than Jesus was. And a Mormon's not even going to be willing to say that. So, okay, so that's the the traditional Christian viewpoint of being saved and forgiven. And so how did, how is the LDS viewpoint different than that? Because I, you know, I often hear, um, you know, from an LDS person, you know, that Jesus died for my sins and, you know, they speak of grace. So what are they thinking that's different than what you're describing in imputed righteousness? It's a, that's a good question. So they're going to use a lot of the same language that we use, and it's definitely nuanced, and it's different than what we believe. So oh, they will say, we believe we're saved by grace, and a Mormon believes that they are saved completely by grace. Now, the difference is, you know, we're going to say we're saved by grace through faith, and they're going to say we're saved by grace through faith and works. So it starts to turn into a works-based salvation. So I'll give you an example. When I was Mormon, I wrote in my book, A Biblical Defense of Mormonism, uh, that yeast is an essential ingredient in bread, and works are the same thing when it comes to faith. Works are an essential ingredient in faith to to make that faith actually uh, valuable or for it to do anything. So I would look at Christians who are saying, I'm saved completely by faith. And I would say, well, you, you just don't want to be obedient. You know, you just don't have any zeal for God. And that's how we're often looked at by these Latter-day Saints. But in reality, it comes down to, you know, we're all sinners. James chapter two, verse 10 says, if we keep the whole law, but offend in one point, we're guilty of all. And so we are all sinners. We are all lawbreakers. And therefore we are justly, condemned for those sins and no amount of good works is going to make up for that and that's why we need that imputed righteousness so badly yeah it does seem kind of like a nuanced thing um like when i'm talking or recently talking with uh, a friend who's um mormon um you know we i we talked about James two and about how, um, you know, like, uh, true faith has works with it, you know, it's seen by its works and, you know, it, it's almost seemed like we were kind of on the same page with that. Um, but it's hard to, um, it's hard to know. It, it just, it does seem like, a like maybe, you know, his understanding of faith is a little bit more toward faithfulness, like faithfulness, to, you know, but, you know, but it is kind of a, a nuanced concept because, you know, uh, we do believe that, um, like James 2, you know, it says that what good is faith without works? That kind of faith is dead. Can that kind of faith save you? Um so he's talking about faith, but he's talking about faith that has like evidence that it's true faith, you know. So I don't know. It's just <laughs> you know one of one of those things, I guess. But yeah, and it's it's interesting you bring that up too because you know it it does go towards faithfulness. And if you ask a, a Latter Day Saint point blank, what does it mean? when it says Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac upon the altar. And they're always going to to think, well, it was this exact moment where he was saved. You know, an action was required. So it, it does amount to faithfulness at the end of the day. But if you look at that verse real carefully, it says the scripture was fulfilled. So it's actually talking about uh, Genesis 15, several years later, where it says Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness, saying that it was actually at belief that this imputation took place. So Abraham was not sacrificing Isaac to become righteous. He was offering Isaac because he was righteous. And that's a question to ask your Latter-day Saint friend is, would an unrighteous person 
offer their son on the altar. Because eventually you've got to, to come back to the source. Why is somebody being obedient? And it really doesn't make logical sense to say someone's being obedient so that they can become righteous because then they are in a state of wickedness doing good things. Do you think of the Roman Catholic faith as being similar and having, um, you know, not understanding imputed righteousness or not holding to, um, to that in the same way as Protestants do? Well, yeah, absolutely. I know that it was one of the big sticking points during the Reformation uh, was that they don't believe in imputed righteousness. They believe in infused righteousness in Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. So God gives you his righteousness little by little uh, as you are obedient to him and you go through the sacraments. Problem is Romans 4 totally dismantles that whole idea, that and Mormonism, right? Where if uh, if you are if you're being obedient and grace is a wage, it's no longer a gift. It is your due, right? So it becomes a currency to enter heaven. But the Bible is very clear that grace is a gift from God; that it is not our own doing. Mm-hmm. Yet we tend to think of Roman Catholics as within the umbrella of orthodoxy, um, whereas we would think of Latter-day Saints as, you know, outside those that we can't even really consider Christian in the historical sense. And I guess it it might have perhaps more to do with um, the nature of God in the LDS viewpoint. And that does seem like the big thing for me um, when I hear, or because I, I think of God as... Um, you know, the, the ultimate um, being that all reality flows from. Like sometimes um, skeptics um, think there's like a, a dilemma here when it comes to morality. Like, did God, does God just say what's right? And he could say, take, you know, some, if he said it different, then it would be wrong. Like it's just arbitrary, however he says it. Or does God submit to what's right? And um, both of those are a problem. Um, But if what's right just flows from his own nature and all of reality is a reflection, you know, well, of him um, when it comes to like morality and orderliness and stuff like that, then um, that kind of gets... um, you know, it takes care of that dilemma, but it seems like the Mormon viewpoint of God, it's almost that God submits to um, what's right and wrong. Like there's some kind of greater reality over him. And, and they, and so that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is um, God's not um, omnipresent. Um, Like he, um, from if if I'm understanding it right, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three individual persons, and though their influence can be felt, they themselves are um, are not everywhere at one time. And it it's kind of like you know taking the 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 way God is described in those first couple chapters of Genesis where he walks and he's here and, and so forth or there geographically um, rather than being the one who, you know, fills the heavens and is everywhere and so forth. But what, you know, what are your thoughts there about the, the nature of God and how it's, it's different? Yeah, they, they definitely have a different nature of God, especially when you, dig deep into it. So, you know, you mentioned that they believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate persons. It actually goes deeper than that. They believe that they are three separate gods. They are mm-hmm. completely distinct uh, to the point where the Father and the Son even have bodies of flesh and bone that look like we do because they take Genesis 1, 26, literally, you know, God made us in our image uh, male and female, he made them, and therefore they think 
there must actually be a female god too. So they also, a lot of them believe that there's a heavenly mother. Hmm. And when they say God is, is one, they're going to say God is one in purpose. Only in in the unity, but not in essence. So they're not monotheist uh, monotheists at all. Especially when you take into account that they believe that if they are obedient to God, they can be exalted and become gods themselves, and continue the cycle through eternal marriage and have their own spirit children in heaven that will go to an earth of their making and worship them. And I think this is really where you start to run into a lot of non-Christian uh, beliefs, because if you're believing you're going to be the object of worship someday, that is a very far cry from Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, so do they recognize themselves as uh, polytheistic, like um, is trying to zero in on there is just one God and showing that from scripture, is that, you know, like a, a, an important way to interact with Mormons? Yeah. So what, what's going to happen? This is just my Mormon apologist, like mind, like being reactivated here, but they will deny that they are polytheists. If you, if you uh, approach them on that and you're going to get a lot of semantics. So what they're going to say is, we believe in multiple gods, but we only worship one. We only worship the Father. So when I was an apologist, I would say we're henotheists, but since we're only worshiping the Father, like we're functionally monotheists, even though there could be infinite gods out there, if that makes sense. But yeah, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, but you still believe that there's multiple gods. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, de- but but it does seem like a you know totally different view of God, um, because it almost makes God a creature. Um, you know, God came from something. So then the question just left open: like, where is the ultimate, <laughs> you know, being that didn't come from nobody? Um, like, that's not even addressed or there's, um, I don't know. It, it, it does. That's the part to me that seems dramatically different. You know, yeah, we're talking it, about something different by definition when we're talking about God. You know. it, it's totally different. And, and they, uh, they don't even believe in creation ex nihilo that everything was created out of nothing. They believe that there is this eternal matter called intelligence and that God's made out of the exact same stuff at the end of the day that we are. And they don't even hold mm-hmm. God as the highest authority in existence because they believe, you know, you were talking about morality a minute ago. They believe that there is actually a eternal moral law out there that even God has to follow. And if he doesn't, he can fall from his godhood. So wow. God is subject to something else, meaning that he isn't God at all. Their God is morality and it's it's the morality that the LDS church says exists out there so this eternal i haven't heard this before like is it a law or you said intelligence like is it this eternal whatever it is is it personal um or is it like an impersonal force type of thing it's an impersonal force. So the intelligence is just the the matter that existed throughout the universe from for all eternity that we're all made of. But there's this impersonal law that just just exists and God has to follow that to maintain his power to have become a god in the first place. And what's what's really crazy is they even believe that good and evil are both necessary. Um, for there to be good. And so they're not, they're going to scoff at us because we believe, you know, we've got the whole problem of evil, but our problem of evil starts in the Bible when, when God creates the world. Their problem of evil goes back to eternity. There's always evil. And they, they try to say that they're taking God off the hook because, well, he didn't create it. So he's innocent. 
but he needs it to exist to be recognized as good so he cannot destroy that evil in fact they believe he abhors it but it is necessary according to the eternal law and so really what they're saying and they don't even realize this is that god hates this eternal law but he has to follow it that's where you end up at the end of the day yeah it seems similar to um kind of like to uh secular type of thoughts about reality like it, it you know you can't really say something comes from nothing even when you do like um you're talking about well there's something that preceded it some kind of eternal state or something like that and it sounds somewhat similar there um but when they as far as this belief about this e- eternal law or um that God submits to um, is that coming from scripture or is it more of just coming from the writings of various prophets and LDS scholars and so forth? There's definitely verses in the Doctrine and Covenants. The exact passages are, uh, I'm losing them. It's been a while since I've read it, but it does say that um, God would cease to be God. You know, if under certain conditions, he would cease to be God. Like if he wasn't. Uh, exhibiting justice or whatnot. And I'll, I'll have to send you those links so that you can put them in the notes afterwards, but okay. I'll find those for you. Okay. Um, I seen this short documentary on um, some um, LDS scripture. I think it's the, on the Pearl of Great Price. Um, and I, um, the documentary said, you know, when Joseph Smith first had this papyrus, Egyptian papyrus, he uh, claimed to translate it. And um, no one could really refute him because at that time, the ancient Egyptian language wasn't something, you know, known by scholars. But then later, I think it was through the Rosetti Stone, you know, that language was unlocked. And then the world could look at the document and, you know, see for themselves just what kind of document this is. And it seemed to have been a pretty common, uh, maybe a funeral doc, funeral document or something like that. And I, I brought this up to my friend and he's, uh, his, uh, response to that was, um, well, we don't have the full document now that um, Joseph Smith had, it was burnt in a fire in Chicago or something like that. I forget exactly the details, but um, because the, the document um, we have is very small and the, I th- the book, The Pearl of Great Price, I think it is, you know, is a, you know, a longer piece of writing. Do you have any thoughts about, um, about that, you know, um, uh, that anything related to, you know, that. Yeah. uh, I've used the exact same arguments that your friend has used. It's very common to say like, Hey, this isn't the whole, the whole thing, but it's still part of it. I mean, it sounds like he's admitting that it is part of the document. So where is that funeral funeral text in the pro great price? It doesn't exist. So okay. saying that this isn't the whole document doesn't really help. I mean, Joseph Smith never said he he translated part of part of the document, but mm-hmm. really, this is our opportunity as Christians to put the pressure back on them. We can't let them just get away with saying whatever they want when they don't know the facts. So when you say, "Okay, well, look, here's all the all the manuscripts that we have of the Bible," that makes it pretty authentic. Um, Maybe you could show me something that actually supports that this uh, document was translated from an actual text. I mean, you must have at least one manuscript somewhere and and they don't, they don't have any manuscripts. They're going to claim that the angel Moroni even took the book of Mormon from Joseph Smith and took it back up to heaven and it's like, well, that's that's really convenient, you know. Why would he? Why would he do that? Mm-hmm. You have any thoughts about 
um, the tribe of Joseph. Um, from what I understand, that's the story that the tribe of Joseph came over into the new world. And that's what the Book of Mormon is like, the history of, of that. And yet looking back into the uh, Christian Bible, the Old Testament, it seems that the tribe of Joseph um, you know, got divided into two tribes of his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, I think it was. And like, if you look at the uh, geography of the uh, promised land, you don't see an area marked out for the tribe of Joseph. So um, it seems like it, it doesn't make sense that then during the dispersion, the tribe of Joseph, you know, kind of wandered off and ended up in the Americas um, because um, it doesn't seem like there was a tribe of Joseph in Israel. Am I understanding that right? Not not quite. So uh, okay. there, the Book of Mormon supposedly takes place in 600 uh, BC. So this is before the Babylonian captivity. So Israel had okay. already been uh, taken over by Assyria. So at this point, it's just Judah, but it's claiming that there was still a family descended from Joseph in Israel. So, I I mean, I suppose it's possible that, you know, some individuals could have still been there. I don't know, but it's claiming that there was a very small group of people. We're talking about two families that crossed across, across the ocean and then had just a ton of kids to the point where there were armies fighting each other that couldn't even be numbered. Uh, which I don't think makes a lot of sense unless those families were Mormon and, you know, having 10 kids each all the time. Yeah. But, uh, well, what what do you think about the Book of Mormon? Should we read it? Should Christians uh, take the time to, you know, give it a read? Yeah. I think, especially if you're talking to Latter-day Saints, I think you should give the Book of Mormon a read. Um, the first thing a Latter-day Saint is going to say is, well, you know, you're you're talking about, about a book you haven't even read. And it's a valid point that they are making. Mm-hmm. So you should read the Book of Mormon. And, uh, you know, it's it's going to be a tough read. It's not the most thrilling book. I think Mark Twain said it was chloroform in print, and he wasn't wrong. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of things in the Book of Mormon that can be really helpful. Like I said, I actually found the doctrine of imputed righteousness in the Book of Mormon. So I will use the Book of Mormon when I'm talking to Mormon missionaries. When they come to my house, they'll say, if you pray about the Book of Mormon, will you join the church? That's what they always say. It's it's their, it's what they base everything on. And so I'll tell them briefly, like this doctrine of imputed righteousness, that means I don't need any organization, is actually found in the Book of Mormon. And if I can show it to you, will you leave the church? And so I turn their own book, which they told me that they have a testimony of. I turn it against them. And Mm -hmm. and I've done this. So in the second chapter, right at the beginning, uh, one of the characters, the father of one of these families, Lehi, tells his son, like, I wish you would be like this uh, river continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. And I asked these missionaries one time at my house, who is the fountain of all righteousness? And, and what does that mean that, you know, righteousness is coming from this source? And they came back a few days later and they confessed that righteousness comes from an outside source. Like it totally changed their point of view. And, and the reason I like to use the Book of Mormon is because they are suspicious of the Bible. The Book of Mormon mm-hmm. says that many plain and precious truths were removed from the Bible. And so they think it's been mistranslated. Their eighth article of faith says we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. But when you show them something in the Book of Mormon, they believe it is the most uh, accurate, uh, the most correct of any book on earth. They cannot just ignore something that you show them in the Book of Mormon. And there are a lot of really anti-Mormon verses in that book. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think of Joseph Smith? Like, uh, it just makes me curious about the type of person who could write 
a book like the Book of Mormon. <laughs> Not that I've read it, but I've just I've kind of scanned it a little bit and thought, I don't know what kind of like um, it's a pretty big book. Like, um, what do you th- what do you think of Joseph Smith and? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mormon Mormons will ask me this question quite a bit too. And uh I mean a lot of it is plagiarized straight from the King James Bible. I've I've okay. seen it put side by side with uh with other books. Was it View of the the Americas or whatever, but it's there's a lot that is just super similar. But you know, there's other things that he that he wrote and said and and Mormons will often say how could he have known about this, you know, They'll point to some evidence that came to light, you know, semi recently, and and I'm just I'm actually of the opinion that Joseph Smith wasn't just a con man, you know he uh, he claimed that he translated this book with a seer stone, and and I actually think that Joseph Smith had help, you know, just like I think Muhammad had help writing his scripture. I just don't think that that help came from God. Hmm. You think it was a collaborative effort then to, to write this, the Mormon scriptures? Well, I think that I, I actually think that there was uh, some satanic help going on. Oh, is what I I'm see. saying. Like I, I think that it was demonic and that there was inspiration coming okay. through that way. Wow. Um, and and what's crazy is the Book of Mormon actually makes that claim about itself, and it's in plain view. I'm just going to say this one thing, but it says that uh, it it says the words of all have become like a book that is sealed and uh, that comes out of the ground and the voices speak out of the dust, like a familiar spirit. So it's prophesying of itself in the book of Mormon because they pulled the book of Mormon out of the ground uh, is where Joseph Smith said he found it, but they don't know what a familiar spirit is. And a familiar spirit is a demon. So it's basically saying their words will speak, will hiss forth like a demon, um, which is a very Hmm. odd thing if we're talking about God-breathed scripture. Hmm. Wow. So you think it's more than just an imaginative man, then? That's kind of interesting. Um, Well, you know, it seems like... Religions tend to minimize sin compared to historic Christianity. Like we emphasize it and we show how dark and deep it goes. Like I've been looking at Psalm 51 and, you know, he goes on about how uh, bad his iniquity is. And then he says, indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. And it seems like other religions tend to minimize sin Um and it's like only the really evil people will be cast out. The bulk of us will will make it and be okay. And it seems like that's the same with Mormonism, that most people will be uh, in some type of heaven or something like that. So what is the concept of um, the Mormon heaven and hell? Who gets in um, and that type of thing? Yeah. And, and you're right. They do minimize sin uh, to a big degree. And, and when you think that you're a, a literal child of God and you are, in fact, a God in embryo, you're not going to view yourself as a sinner. Um, you're going to view yourself as being naturally good, but being tempted occasionally by the devil. And so they believe that there's three heavens. There's the celestial kingdom is the highest one, and that's where faithful Mormons will go. Uh, they believe the second one, the middle heaven, is the terrestrial kingdom. This is where Christians and uh, basically where Christians will go. And then uh, the third one is the celestial kingdom. And this is where all the really evil people are going to go. So you're going to have Hitler out there, um, you know, just, just all these horrible people, adulterers, sinners, and but it's still it's still a degree of heaven. They're not going to be in the Father's presence, but they will have the the presence of the Holy Ghost. And hmm. Joseph Smith described that heaven as being so beautiful that if you saw it, you would kill yourself to go there. So basically, it's a paradise, and they believe that these sinners are are going to go there. Now they do believe in a hell. They call it outer darkness, 
And they believe that Satan and his angels are going to go there, as well as apostates from the Mormon church. So if you knew the truth and then you denied it, you get to go to outer darkness with Satan and his angels. Wow. Which is makes it, so, makes it um, scary to leave. <laughs> yeah. So almost everyone goes to some type of paradise. Is this a physical type of paradise or is it merely um, just, well, it's, of course it's physical because um, everything's physical in Mormonism, right? Right. Yep. And they're going to be resurrected. So if you've got a, a body, it's you've got to reside somewhere. So yeah, they're physical places. Yeah. Um, what about secret temple rites? Like, um, I used to be a wedding photographer, but when I photographed a Mormon wedding, you know, I couldn't really photograph the wedding. I had to wait outside the temple for them to come out. Um, what goes on and is it anything interesting or anything, um, we should know about or. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to breach this topic. Okay. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be a little bit gentle uh, out of respect sure. for any LDS listeners. Um, yeah, sure. Cuz they do they do view the uh the rites that take place in the temple as very sacred. Um okay. so like I'm not going to show you like the handshakes or or anything like that that they do in the temples but uh, basically Yeah, yeah, be respectful and so forth and so I don't know anything about it. So yeah. just whatever you think and your ju- it's your judgment call. The basic idea of the temple is, uh, so like a Mormon's going to tell you that you can go to heaven just by having faith in Jesus Christ, but they're talking about the terrestrial kingdom. And then they believe you can go to the celestial kingdom just by being baptized in the Mormon church. But the temple is where you go to receive your exaltation. So yeah, you can go to the celestial kingdom with just Mormon baptism, but you're going to be an angel of God. You're going to be a servant for eternity. But if you want to become a god and have and be married and have celestial or have spirit children, you got to go through all the temple ordinances. So you go through that and and you receive special temple ordinances and then you receive your sealing in the temple, and that sealing is what keeps you married to your spouse even in the next life. So you have to, you have to do that to be, to reach Godhood status. But the other thing that they do in the temple is they do these works for the dead. Like I told you um, vicariously. Mm -hmm. So they have a a baptismal font there. Um, Nobody who's alive gets baptized for themselves in the temple. Uh, They have baptismal Mm -hmm. fonts in all the ward buildings. So that baptismal font exists solely to baptize dead people. Uh, so you go in there and they say, so and you are being baptized uh, on for on behalf of so-and-so. And then they, they dunk you in the water and you might do that, you know, 20, 30 times in a row uh, for your mm-hmm. ancestors. And that's why Mormons do so much genealogy. Um, but yeah, I mean, the temple ordinances themselves, you know, you've got ritual clothing, you've got, uh, specific phrases that you're all going to say together. And um, it, it comes across as really strange. Even as a Latter-day Saint, when I went there the first time, I felt very off about the temple. But the more you go, the more that you just sweep it under the rug, and it becomes normal when you're a Latter-day Saint. Mm-hmm. So from an outsider, I mean, they've got videos on YouTube, and anybody can go and, and see what goes on in the temple. But from an outsider perspective, it's going to seem so strange what goes on in there. But when you're mm-hmm. in it, it doesn't seem strange at all. Yeah. You know, when it comes to interacting with Mormon missionaries, um, whether they come to one's house or it's just... an meeting them out on the street somewhere and you might only have a few minutes to, to speak. Um, what's the big difference? How to make, how, how can someone make the most of that opportunity? Um, you know, what, well, here's, you know, even before kind of going that way, um, it seems like um, 
uh, LDS uh, people want, you know, they include um, us. Um, for example, my friend, um, he came to my church on Easter and um, I, he's, you know, was in the area, like he, his home is in Utah, but he, he's just working in this area. So he didn't have his home church, though he could have gone to an LDS church, but he came and he uh, said he enjoyed it and everything. He leaned over and kind of um, uh, whispered to me, you know, this could be, this would be really welcome by LDS people, you know, everything that's being said here and the songs and everything like that. And he, um, once, um, so he includes me as like in the circles of like people who know and love God, but we don't include him. And he recognizes that. And that's kind of like a big thing that bothers him. Um, so, um, what, I guess one thing is like, what's the, 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 there's so many differences. Um, what's the a good thing to zero in on to, to help bring that across? Like, this is a different religion. And, um, and do you have any thoughts about that? And yeah, then, yeah. Um, you know, after that, maybe just in general, interacting with Mormon missionaries in a good way. Great. Um, and, and the Mormon missionaries are the ones that we're going to encounter and get to talk to the most because they're the ones that are actively looking for people to talk to. It's, it's hard to talk right. to, to Mormons who aren't missionaries unless you already have that friendship, but a lot more work is going to go into that. Um, right. I did want to touch real briefly on, you know, your friend being inclusive and us being exclusive. Yeah. And I right. do have to, I do have to say that at the end of the day, they're just as exclusive as we are because yes, they want, they will count us as Christian and they want to be counted as Christian, but that's pretty much where that ends. Because if you ask your friend, am I going to get to go to the celestial kingdom embracing the beliefs that I hold to right now? The answer is no. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he, they're still excluding us from the father's presence in hmm. the same way yeah. that we are excluding them from the father's presence. So this is right. actually a mutually, like this is happening on both sides. Um, and you can point hmm. that out to them and, yeah. and they'll agree Like you're right. You know, at the end of the day, yeah. we are separate religions and, and I don't believe you, you have the true gospel and they won't let you take the sacrament or the communion if you go to their church because you've not been baptized by their authority and they don't view your baptism as authoritative. They think it's nice, but they're not, they don't think it counts in God's eyes. Uh, yeah. as, as far as the Mormon missionaries, I'll, I'll talk to them quite a bit and I've got some different circumstances. You know, usually Mormon missionaries distrust ex Mormons a lot more than somebody who's never been a Latter-day Saint is, you know, is going to have a much bigger advantage but they see somebody like me, uh, you know, oh, I abandoned my covenants in the church. You know, I turned my back on it. So I must mm-hmm. be an untrustworthy person who just loves to sin is kind of the first thought that comes into their head. So for ex-Mormons, it, it's really hard. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll sit down and talk to them. And the first thing I'll ask them is, hey, uh, have you had a lot of opportunities to talk to, you know, evangelical Christians? I won't just say Christians when I'm talking to a Mormon because then I'm excluding them from that title. And I don't necessarily want to go out the gate doing that. The very first thing, like you need to get to know them first. So I'll just ask them, you have these Mm -hmm. opportunities and they'll usually say yes. And I'll just ask them like, how, how has that gone for you? And just kind Mm -hmm. of let them, let them vent. Um, You know, the the thing that ex Mormons really have going for them is we know the culture and, and I can talk to them like I'm a Latter-day Saint, as long as I can just get them to, to lower their guard a little bit first. Um, but I'll usually, mm-hmm. I'm usually straight up with them and I tell them, yeah, I actually grew up LDS. Um, and, and I don't go into it. They, they get curious and they'll ask me, what is it that made you leave? I'm like, well, it was actually a, a new doctrine that I came to understand, which was imputed mm-hmm. righteousness. 
And so I'll briefly explain it to them. And at first, they think that that falls completely in line with their own doctrine. So it just makes them more curious. And they're like, well, isn't that what we believe? And like, what is the difference? Because they really want to know. And this is actually why I use a reckoned righteousness or an imputation to talk to a Latter-day Saint, because they don't know this concept. Uh, If you go in and you're trying to talk about the nature of God first, they're ready for that, and you're going to have a big fight on your hands. But when I go in talking about faith and imputed righteousness, there's no wall. You know, We're able to just have a, a conversation, and usually I'll keep that first conversation kind of brief, and I'll say, mm-hmm. you know what, let's talk again next week, and, and I'll buy you guys lunch. Uh, these guys mm-hmm. are away from their homes for two years they can't even really build any true friendships except with each other because they get transferred and moved every, you know, six to 12 weeks. And so they're really in need of, of people who care about them. And we have this opportunity to show them that we care about them and to do that in a different way than just telling them the truth. Because telling them the truth is caring, but they don't see it that way. They need to know that you care about them as a person first. So, you know, I, I'm lucky because I served a, a two-year mission like they are. And so I will just spend a good amount of time sharing some of the crazy stories that happened on my mission about, like, the lady who tried to run us over and you know, dumb stuff that my companions did. And, um, you know, that, that way I connect with them. So, you know, if you happen to be an ex-Mormon, it's not impossible uh, just because you're an ex-Mormon. I've, I've had Latter-day Saints reach out to me months after I talked to them telling me that they trust me. And, and it's totally possible to do it. Now, if you've never been a Latter-day Saint, you've got a leg up, you know, just say, Hey, and it depends on, on your journey too, but here's the thing. There's always something that you could learn about Mormonism, and it does not hurt to, to say, hey, I'd love to hear what you guys you know, have to say, and I would love to compare that with you know, what I believe uh, in Scripture. Are you okay having a conversation? I mean, that's the whole reason they're out there is to have these conversations with people. Uh, but, but again, <laughs> I always go to, to imputed righteousness, and I do have um, – quite a few articles on that on my website if somebody wants wants to learn how to use this with a Latter-day Saint, but it's at uh, www.fromwatertowine.org. Yeah. So when it comes to imputed righteousness, um, I can go to scriptures and, you know, the Bible and explain what I believe and what I believe that the Bible is saying about righteousness. But, um, what I might get from them is, oh yeah, well, I believe that too. Um, how can I explain to them, no, this is what you believe and put it in words that they can understand like, oh yeah, well, that is what we believe. Like, what should I say to them um, if they, if it just seems like they're just saying, if they're just agreeing with me and I kind of want to break through that? <laughs> You have to be very careful about the the words that you use. You have to be very precise in your language when you talk to Mormons. So you don't want to say salvation. You want to say eternal life because to them, salvation could just mean that you got resurrected, but you're still going to hell with Satan and his angels. Like they believe that in a sense, you are still saved even there. But if you say eternal life, they're going to know you mean being in the Father's presence. You're talking about celestial kingdom at that point. You want to um, be careful about even like heaven or God. Just be specific. You know, what you believe is the celestial kingdom. Will I go there by simply believing in Jesus? And they're going to say, no, you won't. You know, when you say God, talk about the Father, like specify which member of the Godhead you're talking about. And they tend to, and this is the thing, when when you're a Mormon missionary, they train you to teach the people line, line, line upon line and precept upon precept. Basically give them what they are ready for 
until they enter the church. So they are purposely holding information back that they think will keep you from joining the church. They're basically being taught sales tactics and they don't realize that it's dishonest. You know, they just, they're just doing what they've been told to do. Um, so, yeah. So when you're really specific, it puts them in that corner where they have to answer it um, accurately. And I'll even throw in there sometimes. Like, so are you telling me that you believe, you know, Jesus's entire life of obedience is accredited to me at the moment that I believe in him, therefore mm. making ordinances unnecessary for me to enter the celestial kingdom. Hmm. And they'll say yeah. no. And another way to approach that is if they're saying, oh, we believe all the same things, you know, they're walking a really dangerous path because all you have to say at that point is, so you're telling me that there didn't need to be a restoration. Hmm. Because clearly there was no apostasy because we were all believing the same thing here, right? And that will make them change their tunes so fast because then they're going to start focusing on those exclusive doctrines because they don't, they want to be seen as Christian, but they do not want to be seen as Orthodox Christians. So if we start putting them in the same category as us, they will actually back away from that and start defining themselves differently. Yeah. Concerning the way we would refer to ourselves is like Orthodox well, you said evangelical Christians. That yeah, might be a good term. I, I to use, use evangelical, evangelical or Protestant because yeah. then they understand sure. exactly where we're right. coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've I've heard that testimony is really big in LDS culture and church life. Like, um, there's even just gatherings just to hear each other's testimony is and um is that something good for us to know about like if we is it important to take advantage of that to share our own testimony and things along those lines yeah it, it can be really powerful because a mormon you know if you look at the end of the book of mormon it has what they call the moroni challenge which says, if you've read these things, then you should pray and ask God if they are true, and he will reveal the truth of it to you by the power of the Holy Ghost. So Mormons are very opposed to the idea that you would embrace a belief because you found evidence for it. They're very anti-evidence. But they're going to say, I've, I received a burning in the bosom, or you know, I had some sort of sensation. Somehow I knew it was the Spirit telling me that the Book of Mormon is true. And their mindset really says, you know, if I came to this conclusion through logic, then I could be dissuaded. Somebody really smart could come around and convince me that I'm wrong. But if I have it straight from the source, then nobody and nothing can convince me that I'm wrong. And it is very difficult to convince a Mormon that they are wrong. I mean, it actually does take an act of God to convince them. Uh, that they are yeah. wrong and that they are not Christian and and what true Christianity is. Um, I don't necessarily think it takes an act of God to convince them that that Mormonism is false, just for them to become an atheist. You know, there's right. there's other things in culture that are warring against uh, against Mormonism that are just as opposed to Christianity as their church is. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, that's. Uh, yeah. Um, well, that's all. This has been really good and just really educational and, and helpful. Um, I guess before, you know, wrapping up, um, you know, maybe um, I can just ask you a little bit about yourself, kind of in, on a more personal nature. Um I guess just, you know, one question is, well, what is your experience of God like? Um, is it um, dramatically uh, different at this point? Um, like, um, does it seem like, um, you know, there's intimacy and a, a walk with God and experiencing him or just, you know, what is that like for you? It, it is a dramatic change actually. And, and this is one of the reasons 
that you've got, you know, so many ex-Mormons trying to reach out to Latter-day Saints and tell them you, you're not Christian. Like, it's not just a doctrinal difference. <laughs> it's because we've come out and we've experienced God in such a different way, in such a more powerful way. I remember when I was kind of on the edge and about to leave Mormonism, I told my wife at the time that I really felt like the church was hindering my relationship with God rather than helping it. And when I came out, my view completely changed. It's black and white. So before I believed, you know, if I sinned, I had to really take a few days to to be better before really approaching God because I kind of viewed him like an investor. And I was always trying to prove to him that I was worthy of the investment. You know, I thought of him like this <laughs> uncle, like across the ocean that I didn't really know who had me in his will. So, I mean, there was definitely a benefit to being related to him, um, but but it wasn't really personal. I usually felt like God was disappointed in me and the way I was living my life. Like I could just never be good enough for him. But when I left, I felt so free and so loved. And even when I was in the midst of sin, I just felt like, man, God still adores me. And it hasn't even put a dent in his love for me. Like, this is truly unconditional. So a Mormon will say that God loves his children unconditionally, but he doesn't believe they accept him unconditionally. He accepts them unconditionally. And now I'm like, I've got unconditional love and acceptance at all <laughs> times. And uh, just... Uh, I went through a lot of tough times after leaving the church. I got divorced. I went through severe depression for a long time. Um, I just wanted a bus to hit me and just end my misery. I mean, that's what what my Hmm. new Christian life looked like. And I remember calling out to God and just saying, God, why did you save me for this? You know, just just for me to be miserable. And God... Let me hit this really low point, so low that I actually let go of him because the suffering was so great. But God didn't let go of me, and he healed me. He healed my heart in a way that just some, you know, doctrinal, you know, belief in in him is not going to do. Like this is a real, uh, this is a real God who does real miracles in our lives. But he showed me in that moment that I don't need a family to be happy, that he actually is sufficient for all of my needs in my life if I will just trust him. And I think trust is really what it boils down to. Because when you're a Latter-day Saint, you don't have that trust in God. At the end, in the end of the day, you've got this trust for yourself and the works that you are doing, that is ultimately what is going to save you. But now as a Christian, my trust is completely in the person of Jesus that he can save me by himself without the use of ordinances. And uh and I don't need the means of salvation because the promise giver will give me that promised land in heaven regardless. You know, the, the thing is that I realized recently, you know, we would think it was crazy for God to, to create a rock so big that he can't lift it, right? So why do, we, why do people believe that God created a church so powerful that it accomplishes more than he can? This is just a really kind of random question just to throw out there here at the end, but how can the church be better? Um, do you have any thoughts about how we can be better in the way that we live together and serve one another and grow together or the way that we reach out you know, out to those outside of the church? Do you just have anything on your, you know, any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's tough because there's a lot of things, you know. Um, I'll say the biggest thing 
that I come across is, um, especially online, this is a big problem online, but Christians just coming off as too aggressive when they are talking to Latter-day mm-hmm. Saints. And it just comes mm-hmm. off like we are arrogant jerks who mm-hmm. don't care about them. And especially when we're talking about um, non-essential LDS doctrines and we make that the hill that we are going to die on. Um, mm-hmm. Like, oh, Jesus and Satan are brothers. Really, they've heard that so many times and it, and it really doesn't get to the heart of the problem and mm-hmm. uh, and that is that they've got the wrong view of God and they've got the wrong view of salvation. And if we say that mm-hmm. instead, they're going to respect that so much more than us saying, well, you believe Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. And, you know, you believe you're going to, you're going to work your way to heaven and, um, and, and all that. Just say, we believe you've got a wrong view. Can we mm-hmm. talk to you about that? All right. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been super good. I really appreciate your time, and uh, and I think this will be a really good episode for listeners as well. Um, anything you want to leave off with? I, I think you gave your website, but do you want to give that again? Or I'll put it in the show notes also, but just um, any way people can be following you or just anything you want to leave here, um, let people know about. Appreciate it. Yep. So the website again is www.fromwatertowine.org. That's where I put all my blog articles. Um, I also have a book out, which is called Falling into Grace, How a Mormon Apologist Stumbled into Christianity. And I also have a Facebook page called The Ex-Mormon Apologist. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you.